Welcome to this Allen & Overy podcast. My name is Victoria Ferris and I'm a Senior Associate in Allen & Overy's Middle East Financial Services Regulatory Group. I'm joined by fellow Senior Associate Ravindra Mathieu, who's part of our Middle East Technology and Data Protection team. Hello, everyone. This podcast forms part of a series where we'll be focusing on key considerations relevant to the emerging crypto asset landscape in the UAE. So we do recommend that you check out the full series. The series will hopefully be of interest to anyone who is already involved in the crypto space or anyone seeking to become involved in the crypto sector in the UAE or the broader GCC region. In this episode, we're going to focus on distributed ledger technology, which itself forms the basis of blockchain. Before we get started, Ravi, perhaps you'd like to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Thanks, Victoria. Uh, hello, everyone. So as Victoria mentioned, my name is Ravinder Matu, and I'm a senior associate in our Middle East technology and data protection team. I've been in the region with ANO for over four years now, and we're certainly the busiest that we've ever been, given the explosion of interest in both technology and data protection matters over the past 18 months. That's understandable. So I guess the question on everyone's lips is, what is distributed ledger technology? Well, distributed ledger technology, or DLT for short, is a way of enabling the secure functioning of a decentralized digital database and is the building block of the Internet of Value. What do we mean by the Internet of Value? Well, value in this instance refers to any record of ownership of asset, for example, money, securities or land titles, and also ownership of specific information like identity, health information and other personal data, which obviously has data protection implications, um, which is something that we discuss in a separate podcast. So it sounds like a good idea in theory, but what are the key advantages of DLT? Yeah, it's a question that, that everyone asks, uh, Victoria. One of the key advantages of distributed networks is that they eliminate the need for a central authority to keep a check against manipulation. So, for example, traditional ledgers maintain data at different locations. Each location is typically then connected on a central system, which updates each one of them periodically, making the central database vulnerable to cybercrime and prone to delays because a central body has to update each distantly located ledger for every transaction. Whereas for a DLT, the very nature of a decentralized ledger makes them immune to cybercrime because all the copies stored across the network need to be attacked at the same time for the attack to be successful, which is practically impossible. Additionally, the simultaneous or peer-to-peer -peer sharing and updating of records makes the whole process much faster, more effective and cheaper. Okay, so you've convinced me that DLTs are a good idea in principle, but how on earth do they work? Well, distributed ledgers use independent computers, referred to as nodes, to record, share and synchronise transactions in their respective electronic ledgers, instead of keeping data centralised, as would be the case in a traditional ledger. That's what we mean when we refer to a peer-to-peer -peer network. More specifically, blockchain technology then builds on these decentralized ledgers. In other words, each block of the ledger contains data about transactions that have been executed on the platform. In order to add a block to the ledger, every computer node of the network needs to verify and validate it, meaning the overall system doesn't need an intermediary to check transactions. 
Importantly, information stored in a blockchain can never be deleted and serves as a verifiable and accurate ledger of every transaction made within the system, which is why it's potentially so attractive. The technology can also be used to sign contracts automatically. So, for example, smart contracts can be coded to be self-signing. By way of an example, if conditions A and B occur and are verified by the blockchain, then cryptocurrency is automatically unlocked and becomes controlled by the other party. Such a transaction would be virtually irreversible and demonstrably verifiable. And I think we'd anticipate these types of contracts would have particular application for more commodity-based transactions. That's really interesting. Um, Ravi, you mentioned that blockchain networks are based on DLTs. Can you tell us a bit more about what blockchains are? Sure. So blockchain networks are broadly categorized as either public chain or permissionless or private chain or permissioned. So any person can become a participant to a public network and can access information stored in that network database but only invited persons can access and participate in a private network or access information stored in those network databases. So typically the categories of public, private, or permissionless permissioned blockchains are used interchangeably because they both describe the amount of access a particular blockchain provides to its underlying data. However, there is a technical distinction between the two. The public-private networks technically refer to transaction content in that a public blockchain's transactions are available publicly. That is, anyone can view the contents of the ledger or verify their legitimacy, whereas a private blockchain's transactions are not. In contrast, whether a blockchain is permissioned or permissionless refers to restrictions around its transaction processing. So a permissioned blockchain restricts the rights to validate and store transactions on the blockchain to invited participants only whereas permissionless blockchain enables anyone to write data to the blockchain. And what are the advantages and disadvantages to these types of network? Well, there are advantages and disadvantages to both types of networks. I think it's expected that most commercial blockchain applications will utilize a private and permissioned chain, at least initially, principally due to concerns over privacy and control. But as I mentioned, there are advantages and disadvantages to both approaches. For example, private and permissionless blockchains give users confidence that a counterparty controls the asset, which is the subject of a transaction, meaning that the transaction in relation to that asset has properly occurred, making it less important to know the identity of one's counterparty. Users can therefore transact on a blockchain in relative anonymity without impeding the blockchain's effectiveness, although this anonymity may raise issues for regulators in relation to money laundering and terrorism financing. Use of a public blockchain is generally described as pseudonymous rather than strictly anonymous, the reason being that users are required to transact using a public key. If this public key otherwise becomes associated with the user's personal identity, for example, because it's used for other transactions, it may actually become possible to identify that user, in which case a public key in and of itself would be deemed to be personal data of the relevant individual, which again will have data protection law implications. And as I mentioned, we did discuss that in a separate podcast. A user's identity may also be established when the user is required to interact with other institutions, for example, for verification purposes. Thanks, Ravi. Um, can you also tell us about tokenization, which is a word that's being bandied about increasingly frequently? 
Yeah, you're right, Victoria. A lot of people are, are talking about tokenization increasingly. Um, so tokenization is the process of turning a meaningful piece of data, such as an account number, into a random string of characters called a token that has no meaningful value if breached. In other words, tokens serve as a reference to the original data, but cannot be used to guess those values. That's because unlike encryption, tokenization doesn't use a mathematical process to transform the sensitive information into the token. There's no key or algorithm that can be used to derive the original data for a token. Instead, tokenization uses a database called a token vault, which stores the relationship between the sensitive value and the token itself. The real data in the vault is then secured often itself by encryption. Essentially, therefore, tokenization can turn almost any asset, either real or virtual, into a digital token, enabling its digital transfer, ownership, and storage without needing an intermediary. These transfers can then be made on distributed ledger technology. So practically, the value of a token can be used in various applications as a substitute for the real data. If the real data needs to be retrieved, for example, in the case of processing a recurring credit card payment, the token is submitted to the vault and the index is used to fetch the real value for use in the authorization process. To the end user, this operation is performed seamlessly by the browser or application nearly instantaneously. They're likely not even to be aware that the data is stored in the cloud in a different format. That's really interesting. Can you tell us about how a token can be transferred on a DLT by way of a smart contract? Well, from a technical perspective, there are four steps to turn an asset into a token that can be transferred on a DLT by way of a smart contract. Firstly, the interface standard of the token needs to be chosen, i.e. the interface to be used with the DLT. There are different standards for different assets. For example, ERC-20 is a standard interface for interchangeable tokens like voting tokens or virtual currencies. ERC-721 is a standard interface for non-interchangeable tokens like a deed for artwork or a song. And ERC-777 allows people to build extra functionality on top of tokens, such as extra data protection, privacy, or an emergency recovery function to bail you out if you lose your private keys. The second step is to consider the asset that is being transferred and decide on the design of the token accordingly. For example, the last four digits of a payment card number can be preserved in the token so that the tokenized number, or a portion of it, can be printed on the customer's receipt, so he can see a reference to his actual credit card number. The printed characters themselves might all be asterisks plus those last four digits. In this case, though, the merchant only has a token, not a real card number for security purposes. Step three is to order the code to be used for the smart contract on the DLT to minimize security risks. And then step four is finally to issue the code and token on the DLT for transfer. So in terms of what it boils down to, if you had to very briefly summarize the advantage of tokenization, what would you tell our listeners? Well, I think the main advantage of tokens, Victoria, is that there's no mathematical relationship to the real data that they represent. If they're breached, they have no meaning. No key can reverse them back to the real data values. And of course, being exchanged on DLTs makes such transactions even more secure and efficient. That's great. Thanks, Ravi, for your insights. This is definitely a very interesting space, and I'm excited to see how it develops on both a practical and a regulatory level. Well, that 
brings us to the end of this episode. Um, as we mentioned at the start, this does form part of a series of podcasts that we're releasing on all things crypto. So please do look out for the other episodes. Thank you for listening and do get in touch if you have any thoughts or comments on this podcast. Yeah.